it's a little intimidating to be interviewing a world debate champion, <laughs> but that is what I am <laughs> trying to do today. This is Too Close to Call, a podcast about politics, music, power, love, money, sort of all those things. And today, the art of debate. Bo Sio is a two-time world debate champion and author of the book Good Arguments, How Debate Teaches Us to Listen and Be Heard. Bo, thanks so much for doing this on Too Close Great to, to Call. Great to be with you, David. We're going to get along just fine. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. So you let's just start how at the beginning, I in your book, you detail about how at first you weren't a very strong student. And then I believe your family moved from Korea to Australia. And it wasn't until about fifth grade, which is still pretty early in life, that something happened where you start to take school more seriously but that you were always terrified of conflict yeah so how does someone who starts off maybe not an, an exceptional student who doesn't like conflict find refuge in debate yeah i think the um the source of my weakness um at school or not engaging as fully with my studies as i might be came down to just being a really shy kid right and feeling as though if you're seen as striving or trying to put yourself out there um you know some people are comfortable with that but when you're shy you're not right so you, you hold sure. yourself back a lot and things really that was when I was living in Korea as a Korean kid, but it got a whole lot worse when I moved to Australia when I was eight without speaking the language, right? Yeah. So there it's not, you're just a, a bad student. You're kind of a bad actor in the world because you can't do very much. Well, and kids are cruel. I, uh, yeah, and um, and and they have a, a radar for difference, right? And and even if it's not um, malicious, you you get a sense very quickly that your otherness, your foreignness, can be something that's turned against you, right? And so there was a language part of it, which was um, I was unsure of myself and in, in how I spoke, and especially in real life conversation, and especially in disagreements where. Um, you know, things speed up and the rhythms break down and and dialect and exactly, and people start interrupting and the passions flow. So there was a language component, but there was also, as you say, um, that fear of marking oneself out in front of one's peers, and the combination of all those things made me resolve to be very agreeable, right? To be the kid who smiles and nods and get along and gets along with others and i thought that was the kind of the groove in which i would ride out the rest of my life right and the thing that broke me out of that was in the fifth grade as you say a primary school teacher of mine an elementary school teacher of mine made me a promise which was that on the debate team when one person spoke no one else did right 
And that promise of attention, of being heard, not just in agreement, but in disagreement and in voicing opinions strongly and Mm. contradicting the viewpoints of my peers and having that be a platform in which to be heard rather than ignored, that was pretty irresistible. So that's how I got started in debate. And this was still in grade school where you, you took on debate. That's right. Yeah. And, and the topics and the topics, to be clear, were not like, um, you know, progressive income taxes. <laughs> it was right, about right, right. banning zoos or um, whether you, there should be uh, uh, soda in the in the vending machines. It was that it was that kind of level. Yeah. Which, you know, I think banning zoos is actually a very important uh, debate to have. But so you then <laughs> go into so you you join the formal debate team in your in your primary school. Is That's that right. and did you get a sense that you had a natural talent at this very quickly or was it something you had to work at and study a lot of it was work right and um and and the willingness to because nothing came to me naturally right whether it was speech whether it was putting myself out I had to do all of it in advance. So I think I would have written down more of my speech than my peers. I would have practiced it in the mirror probably more so than my peers. So there was a definitely a a work, um, an emphasis on the work and the craft and the practice of it. But I think in terms of um, not natural talents, but one thing that I think did mark me out was because I was a shy kid, because I felt myself on the margins, culturally, linguistically, I had even by that stage become quite practiced in listening before I spoke, right? In knowing that if I had a chance to be heard, it would be in conversation with what has already come. I I couldn't set the agenda as it was. And so some of those um, natural disadvantages that I had to overcome ended up, I think, being um, real points of strength in the way in which I approached the activity. So what age were you when you won your first world debate championship? I was 18. You were 18? Yeah. So fifth grade, how old are you in fifth grade? 10. You're 10. Eight, and that was when you're not really sure of things, you're finding your footing. And eight years later, you're a world debate champion. That is a pretty rapid acceleration of accomplishment how how do you what was the most important thing that got you from being the shy introvert who was afraid to speak out to world debate champion in eight years it's such an interesting question i mean um just one one part of it is as a kid you have a lot of time (laughs) you know and and um Gosh, I don't know what it would mean for me to have eight years to work on something without daily obligation. Right. <laughs> Except sort of homework and 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 I guess you have a social life and those things, but this was my life, right? And I I You wanted to do it. You immersed yourself in it because you felt like this was your way out socially to to, to change to change your life socially. I think that it it worked on me in two levels. One is there's the short, immediate feedback loop of having a round every week where you either won or lost. 
and kind of like belonging to a sports team. Uh, I think it's, um, I haven't belonged to any sports teams of any meaningful, um, <laughs> in any meaningful way, but um, I, I assume it's somewhat similar, but it ha- it has a kind of rawness, right? Because you have to um, show yourself. You, you have to stand in front of people and you have to reveal yourself through your thought and your speech, which I think in some ways is more um, revealing um, than than um, athletics or musical competitions or other things you do, right? I, I, I think that. And so there was the short-term immediate um, feedback loop of, gee, I'm winning this number, I'm losing this number, let's try and see if we can get the first set of numbers up. And then I think there is the more long-term stuff, which is the rewards of being more sure in your voice, of um, knowing that you can present yourself fully in disagreement and lose and things still be kind of okay right Mm -hmm. um that you develop relationships with even those with whom you really fervently disagree right and you keep seeing them again and again and one day it's you're debating um foreign policy another day you're debating economics but which is healthy to develop those relationships exactly they're around they're your peers and you belong to a community um those things kept me, they kept me in, in the sport. So in your book, Good Arguments, which will be coming out in paperback soon, you outline four core questions to use to evaluate a good argument. They are, what is the point? Why is it true? When has it happened before? And who cares? Would you weight them any differently? Is there one that is the most important of the four? Or are they all at 25% equal when when kind, trying to construct a smart argument? It's a great question. Um, and thanks for the shout out to the paperback. Um, yeah. Look, what I wanted to say was an argument is not just a random collection of thoughts. It's not emoting. It's not anything that vaguely supports your position, right? It's a, it's a tool of persuasion that we have, that we've... That communities of thinkers, um, rhetoricians, debaters have been working on um, for a long time. And what I was hoping to do with that was to condense it down so to so as to give people a way of constructing good arguments, right? And the basic insight is every argument needs to do two things. It has to show that the claim that it's making is true and that it's important. So if you're arguing that we should be vegetarian because it's good for the environment. You have to show that it is in fact good for the environment and that the fact that it's good for the environment means you should go vegetarian, right? As opposed to privileging personal enjoyment or cultural practice or other things that might um, take us in a different route. And um, because all that sounds a little theoretical, I wanted to give people a, a kind of a four-part checklist for constructing arguments. So what's the point that you're making? Why is it true? When has it happened before? Can you give me an example? Yeah. And who cares? And the question you ask is a very interesting one. And, and I think the answer is the fourth, who cares, is the most important. 
or at least it's the one that's most easily neglected. Because up yeah. until that point, it's all about me, 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 right? It's what what my point is, why I think it's true, when it's happened before that I think it's relevant. The who cares is about the other side, right? Why should they care about this? And that involves trying to get inside their head. It involves maybe switching off the argumentative mode to ask, are you getting this? Do you care about this? What do you care about? What are your values? And making the argument connect for them. And it seems like the toughest piece because who cares can be very subjective, whereas the point and is it true? Well, those are verifiable. I mean, to some extent, we're in a world now where every fact is challenged. But yeah, uh, but the the who cares piece that is interesting yeah. that, that you say that that is the most crucial because that people can say they don't care or it doesn't matter. And a lot of times I find in political debates. It, it becomes. And and both the right and left do this. They mm -hmm. say, well, you're focused on the wrong thing. Who cares about this when this is happening? And they switch mm -hmm. the entire terms of the debate rather than grappling with the question. They say, oh, no, 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 you're focused on the wrong yeah. thing. I don't think you can get away with that in a, in a debate competition. But in politics, that happens all the time. Why are you focused on this? Yes. Right. And it ignore it, it just sort of wipes away even the question. Yeah, those are um, such terrific reflections. Um, there's two sayings in debate that I think might might be helpful here. So one is every disagreement should start with some agreement. And that's agreement about what we're arguing about. And once we've come to that, that's all we're talking about for now. And it's not a heavy commitment. It's we're talking about it for 20 minutes, for half an hour, an hour. Then we can talk about something else. But it's changing the the terms of the debate to say in the middle of it, let's now talk about something else. And it means you can't connect. The other piece that I'd put on the table is, um, uh, you know, I, I liked your point a lot about um, the who cares being subjective. In debate, we think about it as um, one, not only one debate at a time, but one round at a time, right? So there are at any given time, I'm sure, um, a million people debating um, whether there should be a carbon tax. But what matters is the conversation you're having with the particular person across the room from you. Mm. And it's a danger to try and put yourself in the role of um, the seven o'clock news or something, right? Of, of feeling like you have to talk to the masses at all times. There's a time and place for that, of course. But in debate and in conversation, especially when it's one-on-one, -on -one, I think the thing we've become distanced from is learning to see our conversation partner as themselves and to see the power there is in having a single conversation. Right. Not bring, bring in extraneous factors from other debates. Exactly. Debating them and their point. Yeah. Because my audience is largely politically inclined, I must sure. ask you about 2016. You write about it in the book about, I believe you got an assignment to write a review of the first Trump-Clinton debate yeah. in 2016. And I believe you're, you're sitting with a bunch of friends watching this. And um, you say that the debate was unsettling. Yeah, mm. uh, I'll, I'll just read from the book. Um, in my days on the debate circuit, I had been in those kinds of rounds against bullies who lied, shouted, interrupted, slandered, 
and claimed the whole thing was rigged. Those people did things one could not imagine, but they were hard to beat. Those people could bring down great debaters. Those people could win. I think mm-hmm. we all know who you are referring to <laughs> in that context. But you then said you decided you weren't going to file this article. Mm-hmm. Uh, you were not going to analyze the debate. You said explaining what they had revealed about this activity, our activity debate mm. was outside our immediate grasp. We never filed the article. Yeah. Can you take me through? So you're watching this Clinton Trump debate, which will be one of the most historic debates because it changed our politics in the mm-hmm. end, given given how people perceived the debate at the time. Hillary won. And then the result of the election, you know, a month later, you found that debate wasn't worth analyzing why so you're right to say first of all that um the politics is very key to what i'm trying to achieve with this book right because i i there are arguments we have day to day but perhaps none more important than what those arguments add up to which is the health of our democracy right our our countries should be evolving arguments about what we value and where we're going. And that that to me is the stakes. So to give you a bit of context, I mean, um, I won the World Universities Debate Championships in January 2016, right? And this was like oh, wow. the height um, of my life up, up until that time. This was the culmination of my debate career. And, um, you know, halcyon days in terms of my faith for what this activity had done for me, what it could do for others. Um, It's in that same year that those debates happen, right? Um, Yes. The Trump-Clinton debates. And what it revealed for me um, was that the debates could not only reflect um, the division that underlies a political community, but it could make them worse, right? That it's not only that debate contained some pathologies, right? Which I'd seen, there are bullies and vain people and um, and liars and so on, but that they could um, seemingly hijack the activity itself, right? It could take it over so completely that debate, this activity that I loved, had that within it, right? And it ha- it it made me question um, not only what the role of role debate should play in society is, but whether it should play that role at all. Whether it's taking mm. the the place of other better forms of conversation, and um, all that is pretty existential if you're trying to write a comment for a newspaper, right? Yeah, yeah, you're <laughs> going to the assignment. a little too heavy. <laughs> I think it was a little heavy um, and like, and, and the personal stakes of it um, felt so raw at that time. And the big takeaway for me and the reason why I couldn't write the article in the end is I don't think what we saw was a debate at all. Right. And this took mm-hmm. me a long time to see. I think what we saw was uh, what began as a debate turned into something else. It turned into a brawl where the only thing that counted was, 
shows of dominance or shows yeah, put of passion, downs. activity, put downs, exactly. And and one kind of puzzle about those debates is in in the opinion polls afterwards, many people said Hillary Clinton won the debates. Right. Right. Yes. And I think it's true that she won them as debates, but it's mm. not clear that um the role they played in the world in our politics was as debates as opposed to as spectacles or something else. Because in the end, they get sent out as clips. I mean, a lot of people do watch the presidential debates, but the things that get recycled and focused on are, are snippets and clips. And, you know, Trump's put downs obviously got a lot of media attention. And that's interesting that you say it, it really didn't serve as a debate. You did not see the first presidential debate in 2016 as a debate. I'm wondering, do you think the American style debate serves voters or should we rethink them? I think the first thing is um, at the at the highest level, the opportunity to hear directly from two leaders and the ways in which they disagree is a pillar of the democratic system and it's worth preserving. Um, the ways in which it's practiced now, I don't think serves the public as much as it could. To give two examples, one is they speak for about a minute on on healthcare environment, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? And I, I and I, <laughs> solve I think, it in a minute, you Go. know. And I think I had seen um, that this was actually not always the case, right? That I think even in the JFK um, Nixon debate, so I wanted to check this. Um, the the speaking times were just a bit longer, right? Yeah. And and well, that's because that Americans' attention spans have gotten shorter. I mean, I know in media. People want, I mean, in TV segments have gotten shorter. They used to have Meet the Press where you'd have Tim Russert interrogate yeah. a politician and that politician would be on there for 40 minutes. Yeah. Now politicians will agree to an eight minute segment yeah. because they know that makes it a lot tougher. I mean, the, the, Tim Russert's, I mean, this isn't exactly debate, but it's more about interrogation and, and a Q&A. Yeah. And Russert would wear down a politician after 40 minutes and then it would be in that 36th minute where you'd get something revealing. Right. Yes. They repeat talking points in minute 10 and 20. But eventually, if you talk to someone long enough, you will probably a, a kernel of truth will be revealed, even though these politicians are well trained to avoid the traps. So I think to the point of why the answers have gotten shorter I mean, imagine if Donald Trump, they, you told Donald Trump, you got to talk about health care for 12 minutes. Mm, exactly. Exactly. It's called enough rope. Right. And, right. Um, and um, uh, you know, I think you're right to say this is a responsibility that should be borne by many people. Right. It's easy to say it's the politicians, um, but. It's also how we structure our media, right? I used to work as a political reporter back home. Um, it's how we participate um, on social channels. It's 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 the things that we as a citizenry um, react to. And I think maybe, you know, there's a kind of cyclical amnesia about these things. And, and um, this isn't the first time we've had demagoguery, right? But I think we, in our gut reaction to it, forget some of the lessons of history. And um, and and one of the things that gives me a little bit of hope is I do think we do get better. We do develop some immunity to some of these manipulations. So you remember in the Biden-Trump debates, um, the moderator st started to switch off the microphones of the person whose turn it wasn't to speak. And I just mm -hmm. thought this was great progress. You know, because right. the rules were 
you get to speak, the other person gets to respond, and then and you don't have to interrupt because you can come back afterwards, right? You're not right. talking in the middle of their talking. And so um, if I can put it in a hopeful way, it's that we and I, in, in writing the book and reacting to these debates, had to learn in real time what the advantages and the drawbacks of debate were. And I think that's a good set of skills and knowledge um, for us as a as a population to have. In your conclusion in the book, Good Arguments, you write that public institutions should make more room for debate. We can achieve this through incremental reforms, say, to the rules of congressional and parliamentary procedure or through the creation of new structures. I think this is a good way to close. How do you view Maybe this is a better question. What would be a smart improvement to the future of public debate? Do you have any concrete ideas on what it could look like? It's a great question. Um, and, th and there are many more expert people than I on the specific areas that I'll mention. But some of them that I find interesting is I come from Australia um, and it's a, a parliamentary system where the tradition of holding the prime minister um, to account right, by forcing them to answer difficult questions from opposing members of parliament and to debate important issues. I think that's a very important um, feature of the British-Australian parliamentary democratic process that the U.S. executive is um, largely shielded from. So I think that's one, one thing at that level of government. Um, I think also, and I write a little bit about citizens' assemblies, for example, where when we deliberate um, and 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 people come together to talk about the issues of the day, making that count for something. So government being responsive to citizens' concerns, that's another feature. And I think the, um, the last one that I'll mention and the one that um, I, I think will have the most impact is um, to teach people the skills of debate, the values of debate at a young age, right? And that comes down to schools. And it's about moving from rote learning and um, curricula that's designed to just give people a, a fax copy image of, of, of certain knowledge in their minds to one in which um, every student feels empowered to speak with their own voice, to challenge ideas, to test ideas, um, to, to feel like, they are invited into a conversation that's been going along all this time and will continue long after they pass. Um, that for me was the best part of debate. And um, I think bringing that into our approach to education can be another important innovation. Well, I love debate. I love playing devil's advocate. The problem is I do it at parties. And <laughs> Depends which party. <laughs> yeah, sometimes my friends are like, really? Yeah. Are you just doing this to argue? Sometimes <laughs> like... But I find this was a nourishing conversation for me. This is why the book caught my eye. Bo Sio, two-time world debate champion and author of Good Arguments, How Debate Teaches Us to Listen and Be Heard. The paperback is coming soon, so make sure to go look for that. Bo Sio, thanks for coming on Too Close to Call. You bet. Thanks so much, David. I enjoyed it a lot.